This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. I hope you're all doing fine this week. If you've even spent 10 seconds on social media recently, you've probably noticed that it's very popular in political discourse or culture wars discourse at the moment to accuse your opponent of playing the victim card. People on the right saying that people on the left are snowflakes who never stop crying about harassment and microaggressions. People on the left pointing out that people on the right never stop complaining about cancel culture and how you supposedly can't say anything anymore without being cruelly attacked by social justice warriors losing your your reputation or even your job. And while it would be ridiculous, of course, to say that everyone's just striking a pose and that there are no real victims of oppression, it is true that victim status confers a sort of instant moral authority on the person who claims it, and that's why it can be such a politically convenient claim to make. But it would be wrong to think that victim politics are a recent phenomenon, and today we're going to be exploring the impetus behind victim politics through the work of one of my very favourite philosophers. And I say philosopher, but he was also an anthropologist, a literary critic, a historian, a religious scholar, a social scientist, and he was also someone who made the analysis of violence and sacrifice and victimhood central to his work. I'm talking, of course, about René Girard, the French thinker who died in 2015 and who's pretty much essential reading, in my opinion, for anyone wanting to understand the darker forces that drive human culture. Well, my guest this week has been writing and thinking about René Girard for many years. He's going to be hosting a panel discussion on Girard in the upcoming weeks, and I'll tell you more about that later in the program. He's Chris Fleming, Associate Professor in the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at Western Sydney University. Girard's idea is that human societies, going right back to the origin of human collectives, are based on forms of collective violence and acts of scapegoating. He calls this process the surrogate victimage mechanism. And he thinks that the particular kinds of order on which human societies and cultures are based, which is different from non-human animal societies in a variety of ways, have their origins in acts of singling out and banishing or killing individuals or marginalising groups. And this is something that Girard takes all the way back to archaic religion, where the scapegoating is ritualised. We see this in human sacrifice and, and similar practices, don't we? Yeah, right. He does take it back to rituals of sacrifice. And a hypothesis of this nature isn't one that you can just throw around based on a vague idea of human nature or a well-placed thought experiment like the sort you see in something like Rousseau's social contract. It's really an idea based on multiple lines of evidence from anthropology to socio-psychology and, oddly enough, from literature. But, you know, having said that and putting that aside for a moment, to many of us, to start with, the idea doesn't seem totally insane. Communities, you know, friendship groups, nations, fan clubs, uh, whomever, very often base themselves and their identities on who they oppose, who they reject, and who they somehow see as their sworn enemies. And I can see why Girard is talked about as a, a social anthropologist. What makes him a philosopher? I mean, is, is this a philosophical idea as well as a, an anthropological one? Well, he yeah, he's been used a lot 
by philosophers because ultimately it comes down to ideas of of how our notions of reality come to be. It's also about what a human being is. And that if you have a conception of the human being as fundamentally powered by modes of desire and imitation, then you end up having a different conception of how human reason works, about human sociality, um, about ways of reading history, so that historiography and so on. So his work does border on philosophy and he does engage with philosophers from Deleuze and Guattari through to Plato and Heidegger and Heraclitus. Yeah, you mentioned desire there and he, he famously has this concept of mimetic desire. Can you explain that and, and the way that mimetic desire is tied in with the formation of victims in modern societies? Sure. Well, Girard's idea is that human beings learn to desire what they desire by copying the desires of others. We're basically born imitation machines. But that means that soon we're going to come into conflict with people who want the same things that we want, the same job, the same uh, romantic partner, the same status, the same whatever. And as groups get sucked into spirals of um, mutual imitation and ultimately a kind of uh, general hostility, a kind of version of Thomas Hobbes's infamous war of all against all, people end up reconciling by turning on a common enemy who's seen as somehow responsible, uniquely responsible for the chaos besetting a group or a community. And, and that scapegoat is banished or killed by the community and the community finds some unity and peace in that for a while anyway. And so that dynamic is preserved in the modern world, but is, how would you put it, it's nuanced differently in a host of ways, at least partly because we suspect sometimes, at least, that we know that we're doing this. We're more liable in certain ways to getting uh, moral hangovers. Well, with all this in mind, I'd like to turn to the figure of the victim and this this modern phenomenon that we see and that Girard was somewhat prescient in, in foreseeing is the way in which victimhood has become a sort of badge of honour or, or legitimacy or, or moral authority. Everyone's falling over themselves trying to claim victim status. How did Girard see this playing out? I mean, would you say that he accurately predicted this turn in our culture wars? Well, I, I think he did. I, I think it's a pretty clear feature of modern life. But before we go there, just to be clear, standing up for victims and, and allowing victims to have a voice is surely moral progress, if anything could claim that label. But if you do have a cultural turning where our awareness of victims is ever more present, then uh, human perversity, which is infinite in variety and endlessly creative, can easily turn that kind of moral insight into a self-serving a sort of competitive sport. So if you think of culture as a kind of scene, usually the only way these days to assume center stage is to claim being on the margins. Very few of us want to be seen as orthodox, as powerful, as at the center of things. So although we're no freer than our ancestors were from various forms of barbarity, we explain this to ourselves and others in terms of being on the margins, of being a victim, of, of standing up for victims, regardless of whether that's what we're doing or not. Yeah, the interesting thing, I think, about this self-portrayal of victimhood, or we could call it marginalisation, is that it takes place at both ends of the political spectrum. Let's have a look at how these self-portrayals are structured or expressed, because there are some really interesting differences in that articulation between the political left and the right. 
What does it typically look like on the left, this claim to marginalisation, this claiming of victim status? Where do we see it taking place? Well, it's hard to think about some of these things in the left-right ways, you know, because there's both lots of overlap between the two sides and also division within them. And when it comes actually to that division, it's probably truer of the left than the right. One of the aspects of part of the contemporary left, at least, is it seems that seems to stand out is a kind of ongoing, tireless process of purification of the left splintering into these, you know, fractal tribalets of out radicalization of being lefter than thou, of turning on other leftists who are seen not to be down with the program of heretics and you know putative regressives. You know, the sort of thing you see in those Twitter pylons against people who fall afoul of a certain pure vision of the left, even if that vision has become entirely disconnected with many of the key commitments of the left, historically speaking. And this is all done in the name of standing up for victims. So the left begins very often with a commitment to the concerns of the marginalised, but ends up sometimes with a reduction of people to those marginalisations, even those traumas. And, you know, or, or you begin with the idea of thinking the victims have a unique perspective which contains a truth that's been ignored or denied, and that can pretty quickly degenerate into the idea that a person's group affiliation or their ancestry or whatever is a sufficient test of the truth of whatever it is that they're claiming and that any disagreement with someone with that affiliation is de facto an act of uh, persecution. Do you think that the left finds itself in something of a bind when on one hand it wants to fight against victimhood to extend justice to the oppressed, while at the same time making the figure of the victim sort of central to its moral economy. It's like the left wants there to be no more victims and yet it needs victims. Mm. Well, I think it's just a moral economy and I'm not sure that it's a bind anymore than doctors uh, needing sick people to say in businesses. In in any case, in, in certain sorts of analysis would say that, you know, the distraught milk bar owner who, you know, commits suicide having realised the emptiness of consumer capitalism or not a victim at the in the in the same way as someone who doesn't have enough to eat is still a victim of a system with no heart. But we tend to limit our compassion by lining up a list of a priori uh culprits and victims. In any case, it seems that parts of the left have, what would you say? It's an ugly word, metaphorized victimhood in ways, which is I think often unpredictable and and in some ways more metaphysical than it once was. The, the further the left have disconnected themselves from issues, say, of material concerns of subsistence and so on, even class identity, the idea of who can be a victim becomes fuzzier. In certain kinds of leftism, and I want to stress only certain kinds, being a multi-millionaire business owner with a private jet won't necessarily disqualify you if other criteria have been met. Now, having said that, I do think the left does ground itself on an ethic of social good, on an idea of the good which isn't centred around self-interest. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest, Chris Fleming, from Western Sydney University. We're looking at victimhood through the work of the fascinating French thinker René Girard. And if you're enjoying this discussion and you're interested in hearing more about Girard's work, there's a public event coming up in Sydney that you may be interested in getting along to. I'll give you some more details at the end of the program.
So how about over on the political right? How is victim status typically asserted there? Well, you know, for over at least, a, you know, I think at least a century, probably longer than, and depending on how flexible you get with your analysis, probably quite a bit longer than that. The right has often tied as victimary claims to various forms of conspiracism. So you see this with the emergence of fabricated documents like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion or more recent episodes like the posts by Q on 4chan. You know, the idea that the liberal establishment, you know, sometimes with reptilian humanoid aliens and sometimes not, is planning and plotting everything from climate change to globalist child trafficking sex rings. And at the more pedestrian level, there are claims of being silenced, uh, of being dominated by the liberal media with its gay socialist fill-in-the-blank agenda, oppressing the silent majority. And I mean, if you look at something like Trump, he's claimed that he's the most persecuted president in history. And his claims oddly tied to versions of both of those strands, both the kind of conspiracist um, version. You know, it is literally now a, a conspiracist version of that with his talk of the deep state. But there are other rhetorical elements here unique to the right. But that that is one predominant way that they do do this notion of victims. What I find really interesting is the way that there's been a migration, if you like, from the left to the right of a certain working class constituency. And we see this in the United States where a lot of Trump supporters are people who once upon a time would have voted left or centre left. They would have been Democrat voters, but they've really responded to Trump's assertion that they've been screwed over by the political establishment because it's true, they have. And I wonder if you'd agree that there is a claim to victimhood on the political right that is justifiable. Yeah, I think so. And I think part of the, the great white poor of the US and uh, have been left behind by the left and they've been grouped in with groups of the persecutors. And I think that's part of it. I think it's a very complex phenomenon that's not easy to, to piece apart. But there is a there is a kind of unity, in some ways a scary unity on the right that draws on a whole series of constituencies. But there's no question that there have been whole sections of the population that have been left out of the left's notion of, of who a victim is and who has been disadvantaged by whatever you call it, neoliberalism or, or the post-industrial state or what have you. But we often hear that the left can legitimately point to marginalised racial minorities, sexual minorities, exploited workers. Those groups just objectively exist in the world. While the right, and here I'm thinking more of the sort of Republican establishment type right, or maybe the Tories in the UK, they just sort of mimic the left. They, they appropriate the mantle and the rhetoric of marginality to advance their own agendas. The sort of thing we've seen during the pandemic where you know, anti-maskers co-opted the the I can't breathe from the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, would you say that that's a key difference, that the left's identification with the victim is sort of more authentic or originary, while on the political right, it's more mimetic, if you like? Look, I'd love to say that, but I don't think you can offer any a priori judgments about it. It may well be the case that the motivating energies of the left and the left at its best is precisely like this. But the question of things done in good faith is a pretty complicated one. Something's not always easy to answer. I don't think good faith uh, or authenticity can be determined in advance, especially, you know, it, sometimes when it even comes to ourselves. I mean, who knows why we do 
certain things. But it's also true that the the co-opting of the victimary language has been also done by the left. If if you look at the kind of theorizations of Ture Reid or Olafemi Otewo, um, what we often think of as leftist gestures like diversity policies and so on simply allow corporations better opportunities to tap uh, diverse markets and increase a uh, business's bottom line. And sometimes this is quite forwardly stated, like the McKinsey report in 2021, which uh, said that, you know, addressing racial inequities could help the film industry increase revenues by around 10 billion a year. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It might even be a good thing, but it doesn't gel very well with the rights refrain of go woke, you go broke. I mean, Walmart now sells a decent range of trans shirts. So sometimes an ideological shift, and this is where your left and right becomes a slightly strange category, you know, an ideological shift to the ostensible left can sometimes mean that you're reaching new markets and making higher profits. Yeah, and on that note of good faith and authenticity, I mean, I wonder if where it's it's very common for certain voices on the right to strike this threat and pose and you know, Republicans saying that America, as we know it, is under attack from woke minorities. We're being silenced. We're being cancelled. And on one hand, we, we could say that they're being disingenuous insofar as all the structures that uphold white male Western dominance are still very much in place. But then on the other hand, maybe they have a point insofar as those structures are beginning to look vulnerable. That There's a younger generation coming up that is largely okay with multiculturalism and feminism and trans people and you know, largely not okay with the fossil fuel industry or corporate government. So could we say that in that sense, America as we know it, or, or, or as we have known it, is under attack for better or worse, and that the old order really is facing an existential threat. So the victim pose isn't just a pose. Look, I think that the question of being silenced is an interesting one, and, and that charge of being silenced is everywhere, and sometimes there's some truth to it. But the right have actually really run with it. And part of it is, I think, involves this process of handing the mic to new people. One of the ways the young reserve the right to torment the old is through political change. Um, but if you look at these claims of the, the right being marginalised or being silenced, I mean, take someone like Jordan Peterson. He's made a career out of saying he's been silenced and shut down, but it's an to me, it looks like a very odd sort of silencing. It's an amazing irony that someone can gain huge notoriety, massive media coverage, interviews all over the world, outlandish book sales by being silenced, apparently. Now, that's the kind of silencing I'd really like in my bank account. But implicit, I guess, in, in the question, too, is this idea of progressivism is that the right are somehow losing this battle and it's a rearguard action. Well, you know, there are elements of that that are true, but in, in some cases, I think that people on the right, some of them are just surprised that people are actually talking back to them. You know, well, I've been able to say these obnoxious, sexist things all my life. Why are people yelling at me? I'm being silenced. But also, I'm leery of the idea often associated with less of progressivism. The right is reacting because they're losing. Um, but I'm not sure they are. They're certainly not losing in Italy. They're not losing in Turkey. They're not losing in Hungary. They're probably not losing in France. It's likely true that the left have captured our sociology departments and many of the English departments, you know, where those departments haven't been shut down and probably PR at the New York Times. But I don't think this is a real spread of reality. I think people that talk about these ideas because they're products of those departments tend to think that's what reality is. But I think if you look at the political patterns that are happening in the world now, uh, the left's victory is certainly not 
secured by any chance. And in any case, many of us are going to be rightly confused about who is winning here. Is is the Barbie movie the great leap forward in cultural Marxism that its uh, detractors claim or one of the most gratuitous uh, movie-length consumer advertorials ever made? And what about, you know, in, in Italy, the election of Georgia Maloney, who, you know, Hillary Clinton's praised on the basis that she's a break with the past? Well, you might say... Maloney, in fact, despite being a woman, seems to be presiding over a party with connections to Italy's fascist past. And And so culture, as always, is a complete mess and politics can can be messier than most parts of culture. René Girard's work emphasises the role of narratives and myths in the economy of scapegoating and victimhood. What role do we see narrative and myth playing in our modern culture of victimhood, do you think? It's a complex question. There's probably two ways of answering it. The first is to say that there are certain mythological patterns which come into play when we scapegoat, what Girard calls stereotypes of persecution. The people we tend to scapegoat tend to be neither insiders nor quite outsiders, but more often the alien in our midst. And these people are said to be both evil and somehow very powerful or at least, you know, incredibly competent. You see this in certain conspiracy theories, a kind of general trust in uh, bureaucracy at the same time that bureaucracies are seen as these improbably efficient machines. And th- there are also various overlays with, uh, you could call them narrative or mythical overlays from religious stories, which configure a lot of uh, myths. And, and in more recent terms, George Orwell's 1984 is amazingly promiscuous in the way that it gets wheeled out by almost anyone who considers themselves uh, you know, a friend of justice. But it, I think the most recent narrative that's had the biggest impact on our way of telling stories, especially stories about victims, is the Holocaust. Each moral encounter we engaged in is played out as somehow a battle against Nazis. Uh, this is the left and the right. You know, less sophisticated versions of this will end up, you know, fulfilling Godwin's law that eventually in any encounter someone will accuse their interlocutor of being a Nazi. Um, you know, more sophisticated people might use the term brown shirt and at a higher level of sophistication, again, you'll invoke something like Munich 1938. But in some way, I think it's really instructive. In some ways, history is still recovering from that event, trying to come to terms with the ethical gravity of it at the same time, turning that event into the means by which we can bully anyone with whom we disagree. And Girard died in 2015. Did he ever write or speak about social media? Because it seems to me that as a channel for the dissemination of of narrative and myth, and certainly as a scapegoating mechanism, it's, it's hard to beat Facebook and Twitter. Oh, he didn't actually. I mean, he didn't end up, as far as I'm aware, end up talking about social media. Um, And that'd be a really interesting element of mimetic thought if it were to cotton on to this. Of course, Peter Thiel, who was one of uh, Girard's students, ended up being one of the first, perhaps I think the the first large investor in Facebook, almost on the basis that it was this huge uh, machine of hermetic rivalry. But yeah, I don't think we can really answer or approach these questions adequately without some consideration of the sorts of technological interfaces which we communicate with each other, which we construct our own identities, uh, uh, through which we conduct our debates or our discussions. And in some ways, without falling into a kind of technological determinism, uh, they seem to have a huge impact on our sense of ourselves, our sense of community, of who's in and who's out. 
and the kinds of amplification effects that go on in our discussions about the social world and, and the political world. And I don't think we're really, I don't think we yet really got our heads around the changes that have happened in this area because I think they're huge and yet to be determined. Yeah, it's hard to pass it all out when we're right in the middle of it. But I, I'm not on Instagram much, but I, I always am struck when I am on there by what a peerless engine for the production of mimetic desire Instagram is. <laughs> it's just extraordinary in that respect. Oh, absolutely. It's an ongoing competitive, you know, theatre of, of people outflanking each other in a variety of uh, different ways. And of course, there are the algorithmic systems that are set up reward, in fact, the the more extreme engagements. I mean, you never get onto social media where someone has said, oh, this is an interesting article, you know, there's a couple of points here that are good and a couple I have concern about. You know, the, the things that people post tend to be things that they think are either, you know, the greatest thing in the world or the personification of evil. And that tends towards a very polarizing and polarized discourse because those kinds of interventions are precisely the sorts of interventions which are rewarded. They're rewarded with clicks and, and engagement. And so there's a this sort of stuff is incentivized uh, for producing these kinds of polarizations and mimetic conflicts, mimetic struggles. Well, Chris, I just want to finish with a, a question about the voice referendum and how you view the debate and the issues with reference to what we've been talking about. Because I, I thought it was in, so interesting to see Jacinda Price at the National Press Club the other week. She usually has a lot to say about the the serious problems that remote Indigenous communities are facing. And she gets a lot of mileage out of that politics of resentment. She likes to talk about elites and so on. And then there she is at the National Press Club saying that she refuses to tell Aboriginal people that they're victims. What's going on there, do you think? Well, it seems to me to be palpably false to say that Aboriginal Australians are not victims of colonisation. Um, are they merely victims of colonisation? Well, obviously not. But if you look at the kinds of juvenile detention laws passed in Queensland, which allows children as young as 10 to essentially be put in solitary confinement for months on end, and that these kids are almost all Indigenous... Uh, then you might want to ask why it is, if they're all free, why they exercise their agency like this. Now, it might be the case that Jacinda Price doesn't want to buy the victimhood story because she thinks that this in itself will consign Indigenous Australians to a sealed fate. And she's very involved in these communities. But I think that all it means is that using a social theory to tell you what time to get up in the morning and what to do with your life isn't a very good idea. Now, there'd be a way of pursuing this discussion to get, get very complicated very quickly, allowing, I mean, in, involving the way certain political commitments have us articulating views of structure and agency. But in short, I think there's a way of acknowledging two undeniable realities. And that is that society and history, including colonialism, shape us in ways that are significant and that are long lasting. And in turn, we have a part to play in reshaping them. Um, seeing things like individual agency initiative on the one hand and social structure and history on the other as enemies where one of them has to be vanquished, I think is a false and unnecessary picture of what it means to be a human being alive in the world that we're living in. 
Chris Fleming. He's Associate Professor in the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at Western Sydney University. And if you're in Sydney and you have an interest in René Girard, Chris Fleming is going to be hosting uh, what's shaping up to be an excellent panel discussion on crisis and polarisation through the thought of René Girard. That's happening at 7pm on Thursday, October 5th at the Pitt Street Uniting Church in Sydney. So if you're interested in making a booking, because you do have to make a booking, you can find details on the Philosopher's Zone website. And that's it from us for another week. You can stream or download the program via the ABC Listen app. And until next time, I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company. Listener.